0: Osborne Books, God bless him, published a series of books for young people in the late 70s called The Supernatural Guides. The three books in the series were called Vampires, Mysterious Powers and Haunted Houses. That last book made quite an impression on me as a young lad, with a story of a hideous haunting in the US state of Georgia giving me particularly bad nightmares. To this day, this particular tale remains one of the most visceral and dramatic haunted house cases I have ever come across, though it's one I have seldom seen referenced any place else. I can safely say, had this one ever been filmed, that it would have been one of the most jarring and iconic of the rather small pantheon of decent haunted house movies. Today, we're going to find out where this story actually came from. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in Wild West Cork, I take a critical, dare I say it, academic, look at ghosts, hauntings and other strange beliefs. It's, ahem, high summer here in Ireland, and incredibly, that means it's high mosquito time here at the Cabin. I've got bites swollen up the size of golf balls. It's almost bad enough to remind me of my time in the wilds of Ontario back in the day. Well, to tide me over, for this episode, I'm enjoying a can of native IPA from Loch Gill Brewery up in County Sligo. It's a heavy red ale, 5.5%, which should be enough to make me forget how itchy my legs are, as we get stuck into horrific hauntings in search of the Walsingham ghosts. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind us, Carl, was this... Unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Well, folks, thank you for stopping on by. You are, as always, very welcome to the episode. This is my second take recording this. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of a technical incident, but hopefully, the same enthusiasm will carry me through this time around. It is a pretty cool topic, I am excited to talk about it, even for the second time, and who knows, uh, I might be inspired to even greater heights and lows of, uh, of ghost story hunting on this particular occasion. Anyway, I have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. I have a few short stories, recommendations and uh, rundowns and interactions I had with some folks online. So we had a little chat on Twitter this week with Monster Fuzz Podcast. They are also an Irish show and they also look into stories about cryptozoology and mysterious creatures. They're big fans of that. So they were good enough to share some material that I put out this week and that was lovely. We did mention potentially the uh, possibility of doing crossover episodes. That is something I'd like to do more of in the future. So if anyone out there has a relevant show you think we'd do well together, by all means do reach out and uh, send us a message over on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland and uh, we'll see what we can do. Also on Twitter this week we had a lovely recommendation from a fellow known only as El Cecherino. And he had a lovely recommendation where he said that our show is good for anyone who is interested in conspiracies but doesn't necessarily believe them. I certainly do take a hard line when it comes to conspiracy thinking mostly because I think it's quite dangerous and is having far-reaching influences in the world today. Actually, one of the reasons why I tend to deal with it less and less on the show, just because I find it very heavy, I do like to single out people who are doing good work. Um, wading into that particular murky swamp and, and dealing with those problems. And so I do like to give shout-outs to people who are doing that hard work. But it's not for me, at least not every day. I'm kind of sticking to ghost stories and monster stories and stuff where, you know, it doesn't bother me so much if people take them very literally and like to believe them. Um, but I, I do try and approach it myself with something more of a more of a, an academic angle, if that's not too high a word for me. Uh, certainly a critical angle where I try and get in touch with the original writings, the original reports whenever possible. Um, so yeah, cer- certainly the word sceptic with a capital S is not one I use myself. But uh, I'm a little bit more sceptical for sure when it comes to the conspiracy stuff. Also on Twitter this week, we um, Swan River Press, the lovely Swan River Press, were good enough to reach out to us and say that they had enjoyed an episode we did last year about a Cork writer by the name of Fitz James O'Brien. The episode, I think, was called What Was It?, which was a reading of a short story of this particular guy. If you're not aware of him, please uh, take a look back through our back catalogue and find that episode. Anyway, Swan River Press are a publishing house based out of Rathmines in Dublin, and they specialise in gothic and supernatural writers and i've picked up a lot of different bits of information about writers from this time from the wonderful swan river i do always feel a little bit anxious wading out into the waters of the sort of gothic literature especially the irish gothic literature of that sweet spot that i really like the 19th century early 20th mostly just because Look, I'm, an, I'm an, an interested enthusiast, and I know that there are a lot of real academics out there who are very knowledgeable about this area. I'm always delighted to be politely corrected or to have more information sent my way, and that's just what Swan River did this week. They sent me loads of great information that I didn't know about um, Fitz James O'Brien. I was under the impression there wasn't a whole lot known about him, but there is There is. Good writing on the man if you know where to look and I'm always pleased to have advice from professionals. Oh, we also had a lovely shout-out this week from The Ghost Trail on their latest episode. That's a YouTube show with the wonderful Faye and Joe who you will hear uh, possibly Wednesday, hopefully, on my next episode but we'll talk about that in a minute. Basically, their latest episode is about Loftus Hall, one of the most infamous, most well-known haunted houses in all of Ireland. I think we mentioned it recently on an episode when I was talking about that Irish film, *The Lodgers*, which was a kind of a ghost story filmed at Loftus Hall. So I put a link to their show as well, and uh, do check it out. Yet yeah, they gave us a lovely, um, a lovely mention, which is always appreciated. Thanks, guys. Now, what is the reason for this episode at all? Good question. I'm, I've been trying to adhere to a schedule of dropping one on a Wednesday and then on a Saturday. This is breaking with that tradition largely because the audio drama which is coming up on Wednesday, all about the original Bigfoot sightings of the 1950s in California, it's going to be great. It's been a ton of work. It got delayed a number of times and my last episode I put out instead was a, a, re, a reprint or a retread of an old Strange Ireland episode, which I was proud of but still felt a little bit lazy. So I'm doing this Extra one on top as well, just to give you an extra special uh, ghost story uh, for your listening pleasure. So, yes, Wednesday will be Dawn of the Wild. That is our audio drama. It stars a whole bunch of great people, actors, musicians. I'm very proud of it, but it's it's weird. It's different for us. It's not our usual thing at all, and. I'm a little bit anxious as to how it goes down, but I'm excited too, and I think people are going to enjoy it. It is drama, it's not documentary, but it is informed by all of my obsessive reading and research about the Bigfoot phenomena, especially the origins of it, and all of the characters are based on real life people, a little twist on real life people who existed at the time so if you're a bigfoot buff and you love those characters from that time you ought to be able to spot some of your favorites uh, within the characters of the drama so that's dawn of the wild hopefully fingers crossed ready to go by wednesday anyway this episode the Walsingham ghost where does it come from it comes from the wonderful Osborne books if you're old enough you probably and if you grew up in ireland or the uk you might remember they had a series of books about supernatural and spooky things Uh, that were popular in schools and those kind of school book fairs that used to go around this one is from 1979 it's part of the supernatural guide series its full title is haunted houses ghosts and specters it's written by eric maple and lynn myring i've said before eric maple i believe was a fairly um, well-known essex-based folklorist Essex, of course, being the witch county, and he he seems to have written a lot of books about collecting folklore. Lynn Myring, I don't know if anybody out there is more familiar with her work. I'd love to hear about it. But I had this book when I was a kid. It's possibly the first book I ever had that was about ghosts, and it scared the heck out of me. There's incredible illustrations throughout, and I've put, them on, put some of them on my Twitter this week. Some of them are on a Blog post I made a very long time ago, which I will talk about because I have a a mea culpa, a mistake that I made as a much younger researcher, which I have rectified finally this week, but all things in time. so we are going to talk about this book it's fantastically illustrated, and the Walsingham Ghosts story in particular it's one I really haven't seen many other places over the years. It shows up in a 1970s Hamelin ghost book probably because it's similarly lavishly illustrated, really creepy, disturbing images. Uh, if you care to do a Google search on it, you'll probably find those pictures. You might even find the pictures I myself scanned 10 years ago from this Osborne uh, book. But just a, a couple of things about this this version, this iteration of the story that scared me when I was a kid. Firstly, the haunted house itself in the illustrations and this is uh, somewhere in Georgia. It turns out that it's it's near the city of Savannah, but from this from this story we don't know that yet. So I didn't know that when I was a kid. Not that I would have known where Savannah, Georgia was anyway, but the haunted house is classic late Victorian Gothic building. It looks like the the drawings of Edward Gorey. It looks like the Adams family house. It's that super stereotypical sort of Ray Bradbury haunted house. It's got all the the horizontal wood um, boards on it. It's got a huge porch. It's got it doesn't have a steeple, but it has like a steepled roof with with upstairs windows and uh, creepy gaunt trees outside. You know all all those kind of slightly stereotypical American style haunted houses. I absolutely love it. The second cool thing the author did, or the the illustrator rather, was that he he took what turned out to be a series of kind of unconnected happenings and hauntings within the house and instead of making them this series of you know bodiless uh, happenings he decided to bring them all into the, the the persona of one ghost he's he's painted the ghost as this glowing transparent bright blue and horribly malevolent naked man so all of the weird things that happen in the house according to the illustrator are all the results of this one ghost so he's kind of personified the haunting in a really interesting way which wasn't suggested by the text it seems to have been an editorial decision on the part uh, probably of the illustrator which is amazing now there's a whole bunch of illustrators for this book and it's not sorted into who did what so i don't know who did it um, i'm not going to read them all out but i did take a picture of those credits and i put them on my twitter as well if anybody does know i'd love to find out Here we go, I'm going to read out the story as it was written in that book. So this is the way I knew the story when I was young, it goes like this. The Walsingham Ghosts. In 1891, a house in Georgia, USA became troubled by strange disturbances. Doors banged shut, bells rang and furniture moved about, all without any visible cause. A farmer named Walsingham lived there with his family. At first, they were not worried by the hauntings, believing that unfriendly neighbours or naughty children were to blame. However, as time went on, the Walsinghams began to believe in ghosts. The haunting seemed to begin when Mr. Walsingham threw out some bones he found when they first moved in. The ghosts were quite invisible, but the whole family was kept awake at night by hideous screams and wails and terrible laughter. It seemed that the Walsinghams' pets could see the spectres. The cat was stroked by invisible hands, but the dog always barked at the ghost. When he attacked one, it threw him to the ground so hard his neck was broken. The youngest daughter saw a man's arm materialise one night. The ghostly hand rested on her shoulder. She could see it and feel it, but it did not reflect in the mirror she sat in front of. She screamed and the arm vanished. One day, while walking in the garden... Mr Walsingham was accompanied by a spectre. He could not see it but watched prints of a man's bare feet appear on the ground next to his own. It was as if the ghost was at his side. The Walsinghams moved from the house after a dinner party was ruined. A loud groan was heard upstairs and blood began to drip from the ceiling onto the table. Nothing could be found in the room above to explain this horrific occurrence. The empty house became an odd curiosity until one Horace Gunn spent a night there. He woke to see a human head covered with blood floating above his bed. It vanished and Gunn ran from the room so terrified he could not scream. In the hallway he was grabbed around the throat by ice-cold invisible hands and lay unconscious until the next day. Gunn never recovered from this night in the house, but afterwards the hauntings mysteriously stopped. So, there you have the Walsingham Ghost story, as I knew it as a child in all of the pictures they're incredible they're quite pulpy, they're quite uh, dramatic and a little bit over the top and um, all the bad things happening are the result of this horrible old old man who's bright glowing blue but like look at all of the dramatic incidents here the the killing of the dog, the hand on the girl's shoulder. And, of course, the the, the the dinner party with the blood dripping from the ceiling. It's so gothic, so hammer. And then the, the main event for me is the horrible blue floating head because, man, that illustration, I was so scared of this when I was young that I would read the book and, and try and avoid this page because I couldn't bear to look at it. His eyes, his gigantic oversized eyes, and his horrible weird turned-up nose. Uh, he's got blood dripping all down his weird blue face. Many, many years later, I discovered that this image is actually cribbed from the poster for Lon Chaney's version of the, I think, the Phantom of the Opera, where he's got this horrible makeup on to make his face look um, all messed up. And and this image is, is clearly taken from that. But even that knowledge doesn't take away the horrificness of the story. I'm convinced that if anyone had ever made this into a film, especially in that kind of sweet spot in the 1970s, where we had some really good um, haunted house films. You had uh, Burnt Offerings. Uh, you had you had a version of Richard Matheson's Hell House that was okay as well. Um, you had the original Amityville Horror, which I'm not going to call it a good film, but it was very influential. If this had been made into a film at that time, can you imagine that the cinematic nature of these happenings would have been really, really amazing, especially with practical 1970s um, effects? So I have an apology to make because I wrote an article on my blog about 10 years ago where I told this story and I scanned a bunch of the photographs for it and I misappropriated the origin of the story to a Victorian journalist by the name of W.T. Steed or Stead, I've never heard it said aloud, I call him Steed, if I'm wrong go ahead and tell me but he was a titan of the Victorian uh, journalistic world and It wasn't just a simple mistake that caused me to associate him with this story. He was a man very much associated with ghost stories throughout his whole life. He was an avid spiritualist. He wrote many books on spiritualism. And he, in fact, wrote a collection of ghost stories, which is called Real Ghost Stories. And he wrote that in 1891, which, you should remember, is the same year that this uh, Georgia ghost story supposedly happened. So, not a complete accident. I got the name of the book mixed up because it turns out that this real the actual uh, georgia ghost story came from another book called true ghost stories not real ghost stories and that book is from 1915 it's by a different author who's also interesting but we're not going to go there yet i'm going to mention a couple of things about wt steed because wow what a guy this fellow is mixed up in so many weird victorian ghost story type stuff and fringe thinking he was most known in his time for a series of articles in the mid-1880s mid called the maiden tribute of modern babylon and this was a sort of a publicity stunt where in order to show how wretched the east end of london was and uh, if you're a jack the ripper fan or you know much about the late victorian period you'll be aware that of course the east end of london in those days was uh, desperately poverty stricken and there absolutely was child prostitution going on but w t steed did a sort of a publicity stunt where he went into the east end and purchased for sexual purposes a 13 year old girl and her name was eliza armstrong and he did this and he wrote it up and he he incensed all of london and you know hundreds of people were storming the the building where the publication was coming from and it was a cause celebre at the time you could argue that it's the sort of thing that's never really gone away. Unfortunately, at the moment, we have all of the sort of fake hashtag save the children nonsense going on. The, you know, it, people are always looking for this sort of overhyped moral panic so that they can be, you know, willfully be distracted from the real, the real problems of the world, I think. It turned out, if you, when when you look at this story more closely, as always, it was more complicated than it sounds. It tur- Steed was brought to court over this and it turned out that, In fact, the mother of the child was under the impression that she had been uh, purchased for £5, by the way, which was the big scandal you can buy a 13-year-old in London for £5 in this day and age, heavens. But, yeah, the mother was under the impression that she was being taken away to be a maid for some rich person, which, you know, was not uncommon in Victorian London and was probably perfectly legal. So, Steve kind of had to say in court that Oh, you know, it was implied that it was for sexual purposes. Steed actually got horrifically drunk on champagne and pretended to be a customer in order to make the girls scream and have people hear it and, you know, therefore imply that it was some sort of sexual purpose was behind the the purchase. Also, the fact that he hadn't gotten anything in writing from the mother and had not even any permission from the father appeared to have been a big deal as well and he actually went to prison For just a few months on this but it seems to have been a bit of a token thing he was treated very well in prison and continued to write newspaper articles during this time so laws got changed as a result of this moral panic and he was seen as somebody who kind of came up with the idea of journalism affecting government and changing laws but i would say his big connection to the world of the weird was the fact that he went down and he died Uh, on April 14th slash 15th in 1912 on the good ship Titanic. He would have been a huge Victorian celebrity, and Edwardian-era celebrity. He would have been one of the most famous people on board the ship. Now, survivors of that famous wreck tell a story that Steed was seen on the night it went down, um, enjoying an 11-course dinner with lots of other well-to-do guests, and he was entertaining them with stories. He was, of course, a famous raconteur. And one of the stories he told, and um, which he apparently dragged out over midnight in order to tempt fate, you might say, he was telling the story of the infamous Cursed Mummy case of Amon Ra from the British Museum. Now, that story is vast and complex. It's been told and retold in many different ways by many different people. I think I'm pretty close to getting to the truth of it, but unfortunately that will have to wait for another episode. Suffice it to say for our purposes today that W.T. Steed, in conjunction with a, a British Egyptologist by the name of Douglas Murray, together they sort of came up with this legend of the Cursed Mummy case which is uh, was supposedly was passed from owner to owner around london and caused horrific misfortune for all of them a little bit like the curse of the pharaohs 20 years later and after the fa- after the titanic went down the fact that steed was connected to the mummy case story and the fact that he was on the titanic when it went down got kind of conflated and the myth took on a new dimension which was that oh the The mummy case itself was actually on the Titanic and maybe it was the curse that sent the ship to the bottom of the Atlantic, which is an amazing piece of myth-making. I absolutely love it. Were it not for the fact that the mummy case of Amun-Ra is still in the British Museum today. I went to see it last year. It's in the second Egyptian room, as far as I recall. So yeah, the story had gone around that the, the mummy case was so cursed that the British Museum... Uh, had to get rid of it and send it to America, and uh, that's what doomed the luxury unsinkable liner. Great stuff, absolutely. All, all of my favourite Victorian Edwardian spooky things put into one place and wrapped up and, and, and spun around in the pot. But, not true. But the story itself is amazing, and I do hope to get around to it another time. So, that's why I was really for for years. I thought W.T. Steed had come up with this uh, georgia ghost story as well the walsingham ghost and it made a lot of sense for me that he would he would have been the sort of person to publish something like this and he did write a book called real ghost stories but that's not where the story came from i can only blame sloppy research on my part back in the day i honestly don't really remember um how i came across that but the truth is This story comes from a book called True Ghost Stories from 1915 by another British fellow with the absolutely magnificent name of Herward Carrington. Now, Herward Carrington (laughs) was a, a British fellow who went to America round about the turn of the 20th century and did most of his sort of ghost investigation stuff in America. I'm just pulling up some research here he he was kind of most known for investigating a case called the great amherst mystery which was a a fame a very famous poltergeist case in nova scotia in about 1878 obviously um, our boy herwood Her- 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 carrington he was on the scene quite a bit later i think he investigated this in about 1907 but a lot of the principal characters were still around now what was the great amherst mystery if the phrase esther cox you were mine to kill means anything to you you've probably read about this somewhere it was a really classic poltergeist case where you have a family in a house they were called the teeds i think uh yeah the teeds and there was a young sister of the wife and she was only 18 again classic poltergeist meme where you have the the teenage girl as the focus of the phenomena and then you have all this physical activity centered around her you have disembodied voices you have uh, blankets being torn off the girl You have spontaneous fires happening constantly. This was a very dramatic haunting, a very physical one. It really runs the gamut of all the different expected Victorian poltergeist phenomena. There were trumpets blaring, um, spirit rapping, and a lot of communication with the spirits as well. And and, and something like three different potential ghost characters coming through uh, via the medium of the, the spirit rapping. So, very famous story. There's a there's a possibility that the the much more famous or at least better remembered today English ghost story, of course, uh, Borley Rectory, at least some of that might have been influenced by this because the the Foisters, the family who kind of inhabited the house during the most publicized bit of, of the hauntings in in Borley Rectory, the they had lived much earlier, not incredibly far away, I think New Brunswick. So not crazy far away from Nova Scotia, but the the story of the the great amorous mystery would certainly have been doing the rounds and was still very very well known at that time. And a few key elements recur in both um, in both stories of hauntings, particularly the writing on the wall. Of course, the famous Marianne, please help get" quote from the the Borley Rectory story comes to mind, but that is firmly conjecture. I, I really, I really can't say that there's a whole lot to it besides some vague similarities in any way. A lot of, I mean, ghost stories were common currency in both countries in those days, and these elements are not necessarily as unique as they may sound. So yes, our boy Herward Carrington was well known for writing books about that one. He also spent quite a bit of time investigating various mediums. He had a weird sort of mix of, he was quite credulous when it came to some of them, especially a few who um, were... It came out. It eventually turned out were faking some of their phenomena, and he was credulous about them. There were other occasions in which he he was a little bit more skeptical about investigating some of them. So I'm going to open his book True Ghost Stories, 1915, and I'm going to read a little bit of the publisher's note to give you an idea of kind of how he would have been thought of at the time. So it says, "Herbert Carrington, author of True Ghost Stories, is well known in this country and in Europe." Is a prominent scientific writer on psychical and occult... I'm not going to do that voice anymore. On psychical and occult subjects. Psychical, of course, being the Victorian-style term for what we might now call paranormal. He has been a member of both the English and American Societies for Psychical Research for more than 15 years, has written over a dozen books on the subject. He has lectured in London, Paris, Rome, Venice, Milan, Genoa, Turin, before scientific investigations... His writings are well known and have earned him a high place in psychical circles. He's a late member of the Council of the American Scientific Society, of the American Geographical Society and of the American Health League. If that sounds like an unusual sort of collaboration of of titles, remember that at this time it was not really at all unusual for uh, gentlemen who were members of these august scientific institutions to also have a very serious interest in ghosts and, and psychic phenomena those there was a huge overlap and some of the biggest names in one of those fields would sometimes have a more private interest in the other so i'm going back to his book and i'm looking for the chapter that's called haunted houses so there's some great stuff in here i really love reading reading these books and i love to i love to imagine you know, somebody like Eric Maple back in the 1970s being approached by Osborne and they say, oh, hello, old boy, you know, would you like to do some, would you like to do some reading and some research to come up with a bunch of ghost stories to sell to kids and he goes out and finds the most horrifying ones he can and then Osborne are like, great, let's find the most talented artist to draw the most traumatic images from these stories. I just, I flip through these books sometimes and I wonder... Oh, you know, what other kinds of weird stories are in there that we could have turned into a a memorable book or a memorable film? So many good ones. So he gives a rundown here on the supposed Amherst mystery, which is worth a read as well. It's on Gutenberg if you're looking for it. He then, oh, he has a story about Elliot O'Donnell, who, a a pseudo-Irishman, as far as I can tell, who uh, was very famous for writing loads of books about collected ghost stories in the 19th century, early 20th century. These guys who write these books are always citing Elliot O'Donnell. Seemed like the guy couldn't go anywhere without attracting about a dozen ghosts. But again, he's going to have to um wait for his own episode. He here shows up uh, with a, another story about a haunted mummy because, you know, Victorian England, you couldn't you couldn't move for tripping over haunted mummies. Anyway, A Haunted House in Georgia is the story in mind, so I won't read all of this, it's quite lengthy, but I'm going to choose a few bits. So this is like, imagine this is being a more fleshed out version of the story we told earlier from the Osborne book. So Carrington begins, The following account is taken from the report of the San Francisco Examiner, and is certainly one of the most striking cases of the character on record soon after the walsinghams took up their abode in their new home they began to be disturbed by strange sounds and odd phenomena these disturbances generally took the form of noises in the house after the family had retired and the lights had been extinguished continual banging of the doors things overturned the doorbell rang and the annoying of the house dog a large and intelligent mastiff one day don caesar the mastiff was found in the hallway barking furiously and bristling with rage while his eyes seemed directed to the wall just before him. At last, he made a spring forward with a hoarse yelp of ungovernable fury, only to fall back as if flung down by some powerful and cruel hand. Upon examination, it was found that his neck had been broken. We get a paragraph about how the house cat enjoyed rather a more favourable relationship uh, with the ghost, and then... Oh, the noise, which consisted of shouts groans, hideous laughter, and a peculiar, most distressing wail would sometimes proceed apparently from under the house, sometimes from the ceiling, and at other, other times in the very room in which the family was seated. One night, Miss Amelia Walsingham, the young da- lady daughter, was engaged at her toilet. Which, if you're not fluent in Victorian writing doesn't mean, it, it means she was doing her makeup effectively or you know tending to her hair or some such when she felt a hand softly laid on her shoulder thinking it her mother or sister she glanced at the glass before her only to be thunderstruck at seeing the mirror reflect no form but her own though she could plainly see a man's broad hand lying on her arm she brought the family to her by her screams but when they reached her all sign of the mysterious hand had gone Mr. Walsingham himself saw footprints form beside his own while walking through the garden after a light rain. The marks were those of a man's naked feet, and besides his own, as if the person walked at his side. We then get the uh, infamous dinner party scene. It says, A loud groan was heard in the room overhead. This was, however, nothing unusual, and very little notice was taken until one of the visitors pointed out a stain of what looked like blood on the white tablecloth and it was seen that some liquid was drips slowly dripping on the table from the ceiling overhead this liquid was so much like freshly shed blood that it horrified those who had watched it slow dripping mr Walsingham, with several of his guests ran hastily upstairs and into the room directly over the one in which the blood was dripping a carpet covered the floor and nothing appeared to explain the source of the ghastly rain but anxious to satisfy themselves thoroughly. The carpet was immediately ripped up and the boarding found to be perfectly dry and even covered with a thin layer of dust and all the while the floor was being examined the persons below could swear the blood never ceased to drop. A stain the size of a dinner plate was formed before the drop ceased to fall. This stain was examined the next day under the microscope and was pronounced by competent chemists to be human blood. After this the Walsinghams leave the house and then we get the a saga of the unfortunate Mr. Horace Gunn uh, supposedly from Savannah, Georgia he accepts a wager that he can't spend 24 hours in the house and he yeah, he goes inside he lights a fire he finds that it's impossibly cold you get the, the standard cold spots of the, you know, a, a classic haunted house trope something with freezing breath is is breathing inside the room he starts to hear movement around him Uh, as if an invisible person is running up and down the stairs and then suddenly he wakes up in the middle of the night and sees that face that troubled me so much as a kid Herworth writes, Carrington writes "Uh, This ghastly head appeared to be that of an aged person though whether male or female it was difficult to determine. The hair was long and grey and matted together with dark clots of blood which also issued from a deep jagged wound in one temple. The cheeks were fallen in, and the whole face indicated suffering and unspeakable misery. The eyes were wide open and gleamed with an unearthly fire, while the glassy eyes seemed to follow the terror stricken gun. Uh, again, our boy gun runs out of the room into the corridor, and uh, icy cold hands grip him around his throat. He passes out, and his friends find him the next morning. So that's how the story wraps up. That's how it was presented. For the first time in a book and um, it does show up in a few other books over the years but it doesn't seem to be a particularly common story now he mentions the san francisco examiner as a source for this so i tracked down the actual i tracked down the actual newspaper article so the san francisco examiner gives us a date 29th of november 1891 and it also gives us a, a location the little hamlet of Oakville lying seven or eight miles east of the city on the Savannah River. It tells the story pretty much as it was in the book, but I will read out the headline for you. It's called From the Spirit Land, which makes me wonder if this was a perhaps a recurring column about spiritual things. The ghostly visitations to a Georgia farmhouse, in the grip of a spectral hand. A rain of blood falls from the ceiling without any apparent cause. Vivid manifestations of a malicious spook. Now, I did find one other copy of this in a newspaper story, this time from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Brooklyn is a town in New York, obviously, uh, or a section of New York City. Uh, It's this time dated to the 5th of December 1891, and I'm not sure if the image is clipped, because it seems like the headline is partial. It just says, did not like it a ghost that resents cremation of his former bones. Horace Gunn goes gunning for specters in a Georgia homestead but says that he will not do it again. Some interesting parts of his experiences. So only goes to show that, you know, writing terrible pun newspaper headlines has a very long pedigree. On the subject of newspaper stories, that's where the story goes cold and these original newspaper clippings are the earliest recorded version of this story that I've been able to find so far unless anybody out there knows differently I do want to say briefly that interpreting newspaper articles from this time requires a certain amount of context I've heard it said that there was a newspaper culture of publishing slightly daft stories and that take, reading, looking back now and taking them at their at face value would be a little akin to future archaeologists reading something like the Weekly World News and uh, taking a story about Bat Boy literally. There seems to have been this understanding that newspapers had a habit of publishing obviously silly things and that the vast majority of people didn't necessarily take them seriously. There certainly was an established tradition of newspaper hoaxes that included stuff like the The eighteen nineties um you know the mystery airship flap and the stories of wild men that were doing the rounds kind of at the same time it's really difficult to know how seriously this stuff was taken, but when it comes to ghost stories, like this stuff absolutely was taken seriously by a vast number of the public and and like I said, you have scientists and and people high in society who are members of these. Um, spiritual associations who who are literally religious spiritualists in some cases or some of them might belong to organisations like the Society for Psychical Research which for most of its existence was a mix of true blue believers and, and people who were more critical or more sceptical. So it's, it's tough to know how to take this but I think people definitely did believe this sort of thing when it was published. And that takes us to the end of The Walsingham Ghosts. Hopefully you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you have any stories yourself, we'd love to know about them. If anything weird has ever happened to you, that would be great. Please send your story in. Um, As always, we want to believe, but the evidence has to be good. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or over on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So that's all for now. As usual, take care, be safe, and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.